You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're turning back uh, this evening to the first letter of the Apostle Peter. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that uh, it's printed on page 1,218. So after a good number of weeks, we get away from page 1,217, and uh, we're making rather slow progress through the first letter of Peter, but we come this evening to the last few verses of chapter 1, verse 21, uh, through to the end of the chapter in verse 25. Because we've been away for some time, uh, let me remind you or tell you for the first time, uh, if you're uh, visiting the congregation, that we are reading and studying First Peter, a letter written for a pre-Christian world because it is so profoundly relevant to a post-Christian world. A post-Christian world, which our society has clearly become, is not the same as a pre-Christian world. A pre-Christian world does not know the gospel and needs to hear it. A post-Christian world in our society has become a world that has heard the gospel and rejected it, or rejected it on the assumption, mistaken assumption usually, to the highest intellectual echelons of our society, mistaken assumption it knows what the gospel is. I believe if you ask the average university professor, which for those of you who are visiting Americans is not a job description but a title, so there are no assistant professors. There are lecturers and senior lecturers and readers and top dogs. My conviction is most professors in most of our universities would not be able to tell you exactly what the Christian gospel is. And that's one reason for saying that we live in a post-Christian society. And we have been thinking about the way in which Peter speaks into that world, which has a completely different world and life view And his letter can be simply summarized by saying it's bookended by an introduction and a doxology at the beginning in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1, and at the end, just a few comments by way of greetings and benediction. And in the middle, there are three sections. The first section, Peter summons us to be holy. And that goes from chapter 1, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 7. The second section, he urges us to be willing to suffering in a way that is godly. And that's chapter 3, verse 8, to chapter 4, verse 19. And then he ends his letter with an exhortation to us to live in this world in humility. So, there is a summons to be holy, there is 
an encouragement to suffer in a way that is godly rather than ungodly, and then he ends with his exhortation to us to live in humility. And so, uh, these verses in chapter 1 come in this first major section. So, let's read them together. Chapter 1, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For, he backs this home with a quotation from the 40th chapter of Isaiah, with which we become familiar recently, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. I'm sure if I were able to recommend to you a book that explains most things that you need to know about living the Christian life, and then I were to add as the carrot for you to read that book, that you can read this book in fairly comfortably half an hour, you would all rush out and buy the book. There is such a book, and you don't need to rush out and buy it unless you don't have a copy of the first letter of the Apostle Peter. It is probably of all the books in the New Testament, uh, the book that contains the most succinct summary of what it means for us to live the Christian life. Uh, Martin Luther uh, famously wrote, as he introduced First Peter, that First Peter contains almost everything that Christians need to know. That's one of the reasons why in the last hundred years or so, there have been scholars of the New Testament who have believed that First Peter was originally a sermon preached at baptism. Actually, there's almost no evidence that that was the case, to be absolutely honest. But it would be a terrific sermon to preach at baptism. Baptism introduces us to the gospel of Christ fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It names us for the gospel. And so, it would have been altogether appropriate if Peter had been preaching at a baptismal service to explain then what does it mean to live the Christian world, life in a world like this. And as you remember, the Christians to whom he's writing, as he says in verse 1, are Christians who are scattered throughout what nowadays we call Turkey. And he begins, as he writes to these Christians who are already suffering and going to suffer more, not a letter of sympathy, I'm so sorry it's so hard for you to be a Christian. He begins not with sympathy, but with doxology. What a great and glorious thing it is to be a Christian. And of course, you can understand the 
the spiritual intelligence of that. Uh, when we are suffering and somebody writes to us and says, I'm, I'm really very sorry you're suffering. It's terrible to be suffering, and, and I feel your pain. And uh, well, what happens to the recipient? The, the recipient either is profoundly irritated by saying, you have no idea what my pain really is. Don't give me any of this nonsense that you know what I'm going through. Or they sink into themselves and say, I'm glad somebody's agreeing with me that this is miserable. Well, that's no spiritual help whatsoever. So, what Peter does is he lifts our eyes to the privileges that are ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he puts the suffering of these Christians into a different frame, and that's, as we've seen, so important. An art expert comes along and looks at this painting you've got on the wall. I say, I'm just wondering if I should give it to the charity shop. He says, no, that, that painting is worth a hundred thousand pounds. What it needs is a new frame that will show you how glorious it is. And this is what Peter has been doing. And now he's calling us in the light of the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ to respond to those riches by living lives that are set apart for God, that are holy to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how uh, so many of the things that were used in the service of God in the Old Testament were set apart as holy. But now in this new covenant in Jesus Christ, God has set us apart. He has, he has put His reserved sticker on us, and said, now you're mine. And Peter is explaining to us that that belonging to the Lord, that holiness without which none of us will see the Lord, that Christ-likeness that the Spirit works in His children is manifested in a series of concentric circles. First of all, in the lives we live, in and of themselves, day by day, we are called to be holy because the one we serve and love is holy. And now he's moving on to, to another concentric circle. Personal holiness never exists in an individualistic context. And so he's calling us now, as you would see in the passage we've read, to be holy in the life we live in relationship to others. And the key expression there that gives us that indication is that he tells us to love one another. He's told us to live holy lives to the Lord, and now he's saying holiness in the life of the community looks like loving one another. And it's interesting to notice, as perhaps you did notice as we read these few verses, that there is a kind of structure to them. There is one single exhortation. There is one thing He summons us to do, and that's to love one another. But then He, he boundaries that or supports that on either side 
on the one hand, in verse 21, by telling us what it is that we have done that begins to make this possible, and then on the other hand, by what God has done in order to make this realizable. So, there's, there's one basic exhortation, one simple statement, love one another. And he's surrounding that by indicating to us what it is that actually makes that possible. Because he assumes it's, it's not natively in us to love one another. Actually, you know, you end up in a church and you think, it's not natively in me to like half of these people. But to love one another. And of course, as we'll see as we study these verses, there's a tremendously important reason why he says, holiness in the life of the fellowship looks like love. Now, why is that important? Because that's not what a non-Christian thinks. When a non-Christian hears the word holy applied to the church, then the non-Christian thinks Pharisee of, of the worst kind about whom Isaac was speaking this morning, thinks holier than thou. But no holiness in the church. What makes the church holy? In that sense, what makes the church like the Lord and different from the world and simultaneously rather frightening to the world while at the same time being absolutely compelling to the world is that holiness at the end of the day actually looks like love, which is why when people who have no real familiarity with a living Christian church, and that includes many people who are in dead, quotes, Christian churches, find a living Christian church. They may think, these, these, these zealous evangelical people, they are so stiff, they are so difficult, I, they will treat me as an outcast, and they discover the very opposite is true that holiness at the end of the day is intense love. And we need to understand that that's true of God. Often, you know, when we, somebody says to us, what's holiness? We say it's separation from sin. That couldn't originally be true of God, could it? Because there was no sin from which He would be separate. Holiness originally in God, if in a sense you could be projected, you alone could be projected beyond the creation to, to observe God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before there was anything beyond God. If you were able to observe His holiness, you would not be defining that holiness in terms of He's separate from the world. There's no world to be separate from. You wouldn't define it in terms of saying He's separate from sin because there was no sin to be separate from. What you would see would be the sheer, for you, almost unbearable intensity of the absoluteness of the devotedness 
of the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, and the Father and Son to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, an intensity of devotion that would make holy creatures of whom Isaiah speaks in Isaiah chapter 6, veil their faces because even although they are perfectly holy, have never been in a sinful world, they see there is an intensity in this mutuality of love in God that is unbearable, so beautiful, so intense, that their instinct is to shield themselves from it. And it is interesting, isn't it? I find it absolutely gripping in the Acts of the Apostles when we're told in Acts chapter 5 that that was true of the early Christian church, that on the one hand, those who were not Christians felt they needed to be shielded from this new community. They didn't dare join it. And then in the next sentence, we're told that more people than ever were being joined to the church. So, there is this, there is this paradox in holiness. Yes, it does repel sin, and it shows up its real nature, but it is so real, so beautiful, so intense in the love that characterizes it, that when you see it, you understand this is how things were really meant to be. And this is Peter's passion as he's, he's writing to these small communities in various parts of Turkey, longing that there will be something about them that will make non-Christians ask them, what is it about you that's so different? Remember how he says it in chapter 3 and verse 15, and these famous words, always be ready to give an answer, a reason, an explanation for what, what makes you different. Um, that's so much more important than what f I think not only superficially, but in a measure dishonestly, sometimes evangelical Christians have gone out into the streets just as other people do, the sects do, and other people do, saying, we're just asking a questionnaire. And it's really a kind of trick. You see, you're an evangelical spider trying to catch the fly by speaking less than the truth and you're asking the non-Christian world questions. Now, there's a place for that, but there's no powerful place for that if the church is not such a community that it causes the non-Christian world to ask us questions as to what makes us so different. And, and Peter's response here is what makes us different, what makes us holy is that we respond to this basic exhortation in verse 22. Now, he says, now that you're Christ's, have a sincere love for your brothers, loving one another deeply from the heart. Loving one another deeply from the heart. 
because you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth. He uses language that's kind of interesting here. Um, uh, you know, some of you don't feel this, but, uh, you know, others, you, 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 you go out into the garden, and what do you feel the next day? Well, you feel sore, don't you? Why do you, why do you feel sore? You didn't used to feel sore. Forty years ago, that didn't make you feel sore. Why do you? Because, you see, you've not been exercising those muscles. And what he's saying here is you I want you to love one another, to exercise gospel muscle in relationship to one another, and the way you'll know that you are really beginning to do it is that you really do feel on the stretch, that this is beyond where you would naturally go. This is what he means when he tells us that we're to love each other in, an, in a way that is, that is deep or earnest, and that we should do it from the heart. Of course, the heart in the Scriptures is not the anatomical heart. Uh, it's, the, it's the very core of our beings. And this is what makes this love so extraordinary. This is one of the reasons he calls it a sincere love earlier on in verse 22, because it actually is the real deal. It is the real deal. And, and you don't always see that in, in churches. I remember telling a friend once in a, in a, a, a church, I said, um, when people come over and, and shake your hand here, they'll, they'll tell you, it's really great to see you. How are you doing? And here's, here, I want you to do this. When, grip their hand as tightly as you can and say, actually, I'm not doing very well. And what, what will you discover? They didn't care a rap how you were doing. It was, it was altogether superficial. Now, of course, some of us don't like people asking us how we're doing. Hey, if that's you, then say you're okay. <laughs> you're okay. Okay? You know, but it's possible to have a it's possible, it's possible to have a certain kind of dynamic in church life where, where everybody is actually playing games with everybody else. And the, the word that Peter uses here, the adjective he uses, is our old friend without hypocrisy. The masks are off. There's, there's, there's eye-to-eye contact. There's real there's real affection, and there is this love, and it, it, comes, it comes from the heart. Now, you know there are different words for love used in, in the New Testament, and sometimes, sometimes we can say things about words that don't really apply to words. Lots of different words kind of morph into one another. But this, this is agape love. This is this is, the, this is the kind of love that we learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. And the key to it, what is the key to this? I think it lies in the words, one another. 
Um, I read somewhere about 40 years ago that the great ballet dancers are externally rotated. The great ballet dancers are externally rotated. And I thought that's true of the great Christians as well. It's, it's true of real Christians. We are less internally rotated than externally rotated. We've, we've learned what the gospel teaches us about, about uh, as the hymn says, a heart that trusts in Christ and is at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize with others. There are few more blessed deliverances for us as Christians than the deliverance from ourselves to to be, to be one another. And you know that's a phrase that's used fairly frequently in the New Testament, isn't it? And so it's a big thing, isn't it? Um, it's a great indication of real spiritual progress and health. I mean, uh, uh, are you one of those kind of Christians? Always taking your own temperature. And you always measure how you're doing spiritually without any relationship to anyone else. But that doesn't work. Real spiritual progress is more and more being externally rotated, forgetful of self, and loving, caring for others. How do we know that? Because we see it in Jesus. I mean, what could be more externally rotated than to be hanging on a cross, being abused by all and sundry, even by the two bandits who are being crucified with you, heaping their scorn on them, and then one of them turning to you and saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And as it were, as though the salvation of the world were not already resting on his shoulders… I mean, you think, you know, you'd be entitled to say, have you any idea what I'm going through here? And you're concerned about whether you're going to be in the kingdom or not? And you would think that was the only man in the world that he cared for. Oh, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there's nothing more amazing in Jesus' ministry than the way in which within 24 hours of that horrible death, he seemed so externally rotated, concerned about his disciples. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Isn't that amazing? Don't you think that's amazing? When the Gospels themselves tell us that he was troubled almost out of his mind, as it were, at what was going to befall him, and there he is speaking to them in this love for them. And so, when we become Christ, as Paul says, and the new creation dawns, one of the things that happens is that we no longer live to ourselves, but we live to Him, and thus we are set free to live for one another. And see, without this, remember how Paul says, love is what 
binds all our graces and gifts together in unity in Colossians 3.14. Without this, everything else in your life falls to pieces. It doesn't matter what gifts you have. You know, you might be the greatest church administrator in the world. You might be the greatest musician. You might be the greatest preacher. You, you might have amazing gifts. And indeed, you might have some really terrific graces. But Paul was right to say, if you don't have love, it just all might as well all go up in flames. Nothing fits together. And so, he's exhorting us in verse 22. <laughs> Do you know how many Christians have said in the past, it's not the things that are difficult to understand in the New Testament that are difficult. It's the things you couldn't possibly misunderstand. I mean, love one another. But you see, that's supernatural. But when, when that begins to happen in a fellowship, then you've got something. But we don't have those resources, so Peter then points us back to a work of preparation that has been already done in our lives. And notice the way he, he puts it. He says, now there's something that's already true of you. You see, love one another right from the heart. How can I do this? Because something is already true of you. Because, he says, you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Purified yourself. In other words, it's a, it's a commitment. It's a single-mindedness. This is, this, this is what I'm going to be and to do. I'm going to love them. It's a decision of my will. You notice this is a command, don't you? It's not an explosion of emotion you know, that overtakes you, and suddenly, golly, I love these Christians. Now, there's a command. How are we going to keep this command? He says, because we've already committed ourselves. Our hearts have been purified by, notice the language he uses, by obeying the truth. Now, a little language lesson. The, the verb obey here very literally, you know, if you, if you unpack the, the, um, the word, it means literally to, to hear or to listen underneath. Obedience is hearing, listening to, and hearing the Word of God as someone who is conscious that we live underneath it. And you see what he's saying, don't you? He's saying, you see, these resources are not found in me, but they are created in me when my life is hearing underneath the Word of God. In other words, he's saying, remember how Paul puts it to Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, 
He says, I'm so glad that when you received the Word of God, you received it as it really is, not as the mere words of a man, but as it really is the Word of God that is at work in you. So, here I'm being summoned to something that's impossible for me. It's not in me by nature. But what he's saying is, ah, yes, but you've been prepared for this because your life has been brought under the molding and shaping influences of the Word of God, and it will produce that in you. And it does, doesn't it? It shapes the way you think. It shapes the way you feel. Your life is under it, and it's God's hands, as it were, are are like kneading the door. He is like, the, through the Word, He's like the potter shaping you. And so, you discover that there are these resources brought into your life through these biblical influences that have this effect. Notice the language He uses now. It produces a sincere love for your brothers. And now, it's a different word. Um, it's Philadelphia. I used to live in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Not if you go to the sports games, it's not the city of brotherly love. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, now, what makes this love drawn out of your life for one another is, let me put it simply, that the Word of God has taught you something you can learn nowhere else. It's taught you these people who are sitting around you are your brothers and sisters. They're your family. And, and we've seen before that the New Testament is just shot through with this. I think Stuart this morning, he, he just, in, a, in passing, instinctively made a comment about our, our church family. That's the that's the oil for the wheels of this love, because we, we as Christians do not think about each other the way other people think about others. We think about one another as, as brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and mothers and children. Remember how Paul emphasizes this to Timothy? Now, I know this is in the context of speaking to a, a pastor evangelist, and he's got certain responsibilities that not all of us may have. But do you, do you remember how he says, this is the way you, you, Timothy, as an individual, should treat others. He says, so don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if you, he were your father. If you're, you know, with one exception in this church, everybody has somebody in this church who's older than them. I don't know who the exception is. Okay, it's not Will. <laughs> so here I, 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 and it's difficult to tell, isn't it, who's older than whom nowadays. And the older you get, the more difficult it becomes. But if you look older than me, how should I treat you? I should treat you as what you are, a father. I mean, isn't that something? I mean, it's so simple. The gospel does not make life more complicated. It makes our relationships with one another simpler. You're my father, and I'm going to treat you as my father. 
And then he goes on. Well, he says, don't just stop there. He says, treat younger men as brothers. As brothers. You're my brother. And older women as mothers. And younger women as sisters. With absolute purity. Actually, just by the by, you know, if you're in the courting stage or want to be in the courting stage, that's a good place to start. How, how should I treat this boy? How should I treat this girl? First of all, as a brother and as a sister. I mean, in the best sense. To some of you, that would mean scratch his eyes out. I don't mean that. And so, it's so and now why is this so significant? I mean, I, surely I don't need to explain why it's so significant. It's because this letter, if you run through it in a spare half hour, it's shot through with the language of family. God is our Father. He's already told us that. We've been given a new birth. He's already told us that. We've been born into an inheritance. He's told us that. We're children of God, and it's all the way through. You're part of the brotherhood, he says. And you see, when that truth, when, when my mind is absorbed with that truth. This is family. These are brothers and sisters. That itself produces the effect in me. If that's the case, then I begin to think about my relationship to others in terms of who they are, and that calls forth from my heart a disposition to treat them as who they are, whether it be father or mother or son or daughter, or, or brother or sister. And then he bookends it in, in another way, you'll notice. He bookends it on the one hand by saying, now you've been set apart to this and you've committed yourself to this. But then he bookends it on the other end by saying, yes, but that's not the only thing that's true. He says, verse 23, you have been born again to this, and not by a perishable seed, but by an imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. You see what he's saying now? You know, you experience this, and you, you know, a new Christian experience this, and what, what, what are they going to think? They're going to think, you know, this isn't going to last. It's just a burst of amazing energy that I love these people that I used to think were so strange. And now I see they're so normal, and I love them. But will it last? Of course, he says it will last, because this new birth of which I've been writing to you is a new birth that has been produced by the imperishable, everlasting seed of the Word of God that has illumined your understanding and made you see the world and people in completely different ways. Remember how Paul puts it again in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, if anyone's in Christ, it's, it's like a new creation. And he says, so we no longer look at each other from a merely human, horizontal point of view. That's the difference. So that the non-Christian coming among the Christians, what's his or her problem? His or her problem is that he or she cannot yet stand in a position where they see the way these Christians see each other. He or she is an outsider. 
like a little boy with ladders kind of peering in at the window, can't see what it looks like from the inside, and wonders. I don't know if I've mentioned before, I remember playing football in the park in Glasgow a hundred years ago with one of our boys, and uh, of course, I was the goalkeeper, and um, not a very good one. And there was, a, there was a wee boy being pulled along by his dad. I mean, he was being pulled along. It was almost like flying through the air, like a cartoon. And as I, as I, I watched him out the corner of his eye, and his dad pulled him along, he kept turning back to look at the two of us having this supposedly great time with the football, soccer ball. And he kept turning around, and written all over his face was, I wish I was in that family. I wish I was in that family. And this is what he's speaking about here, that this loving of one another that is the central characteristic of the children of God and their relationship to one another, what holiness looks like in the relationships that we have with one another is grounded in the fact that we have the same Father, the same new birth, and the same brotherly love for each other. I've never forgotten listening to a a radio interview I heard with a a youngish woman. Now, from this perspective, youngish woman can be anything under 55, can't it? This was a lady in her early 30s, I would have guessed. She had been a rampant feminist. I mean, a really rampant feminist. Hated everything the church stood for. And somehow or another, she had been uh, cajoled, prayed for, arrested, drawn by a friend or colleague who was a Christian to church in which a friend of mine was minister. I'll never forget her saying in this interview, absolutely everything these people stood for, I abominated. But when I saw the way the husbands treated the wives, when I saw the way the children related to the parents, when I saw the way in which the older people were honored, then I knew everything I abominate here is actually everything that is the way things really ought to be. Of course, uh, we can never set ourselves up as, as getting things perfectly right. This is not an exhortation to perfect family life. Who knows what perfect family life would look like? completely individualistic, but things that are in common, that we are driven by this love for one another because we have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know it's possible for us to say in in different ways, yeah, but, you know, you don't know the people I'm stuck with. But think about Moses. Think about what he was prepared to suffer for the sake of the people of God. And think about what sits 
around you, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, and pray that, fascinatingly, hundred and however many years after Peter wrote this letter, the early Christian apologist, Tertullian, wrote in his apology, here are all here are all the intellectual arguments for the cohesiveness, integrity, and reasonableness of the Christian gospel. But here's the thing. See how these Christians love one another. And this, of course, as our Savior has taught us, is the great mark. Without this, we have no reason to believe that we're Christians. If you get to know some of the folks around here with all our idiosyncrasies and you do not love us earnestly from the heart with a brotherly and sisterly love, you've actually no reason to believe that you're a Christian. Because Jesus says, when someone is born into the family, that's what happens. And as it begins to happen, and as we live, as they were living in a pre-Christian world and we are living in a post-Christian world, of course the gap will get wider and wider. But as the gap gets wider and wider, the power and the clarity of what it means to be Christ's will become clearer and clearer. And of one thing we may be sure, individually, because as we have gone on in our Christian lives, we've often found this to be true, that something that is never accomplished in a year may be accomplished in 20 years. The day will come when friends and neighbors and colleagues and people we knew in the past will come perhaps weeping on our shoulder and say, tell me what the secret is. Tell me what explains this. And as Peter says, we'll be ready to give them a reason for the hope that is in us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the way in which it surrounds our lives. Thank You that although we confess that we have often failed to obey it fully, yet we have wanted to listen underneath. We have not wanted to sit around this book as it has been expounded, but we've been glad to sit underneath its teaching and to allow its truth to, to permeate us. So, as Isaac was helping us to grasp this morning, uh, some of us are, are almost neurotic about being doers, and your word teaches us, first of all, to, to see things differently in order that we may do things differently. And we pray for ourselves here that we, that we really may treat one another in this family love, uh, a fellowship of, of children with fathers, brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters. We ask that that may so permeate everything about our fellowship, that the 
what was said, and, and Peter knew it must have impressed him so much what was said about the early Christians in Jerusalem may be, may be true of St. Peter's. It was true in huge measure one day in the past in this building, that people dared not join, and yet they were coming in their great numbers. And we pray that we may labor and pray and be faithful and expectant that the day will come when some and then many will ask the question and we will be ready to give the explanation for the hope that's in us. So hear us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.